Welcome to Thrive, Building Resilient Families, Austin Child Guidance Center's first ever podcast. This podcast was created to normalize the challenges of parenthood and to provide parents and caregivers with strategies and support in their efforts to help their children to thrive in childhood and beyond. I am Kristen Pierce Freaky, the Executive Director of ACGC, and I'd like to introduce today's guest, Scott Van Camp. Scott is a licensed marriage and family therapist with over 20 years of experience, and Scott joined ACGC over the summer as our new Director of Therapy Services. Prior to ACGC, Scott was the Clinical Director for Austin Center for Grief and Loss. We are lucky to have him join ACGC and appreciate him taking the time to talk with us. Welcome, Scott. Thank you for having me, me, Kristen. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Great. So let's just jump in. Um, So you're our new Director of Therapy Services here at ACGC. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do here? Yeah. Uh, About myself, ACGC is a bit of a homecoming for me in that um, I began my career in 1989 in New York. And um, it was when we were making a concerted effort to uh, deinstitutionalize treatment options for teens. So uh, we started a community-based group home and learned a lot of cool things in the process of that. And that sort of um, led to me working with uh, children, uh, teens and families uh, through my undergrad and actually my graduate work too. And only recently had I worked um, more predominantly with adults. So most of my career has been uh, children, teens and families mm-hmm. with a focus on probably teens. Hmm. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, my role here, just uh, <laughs> um, as a director of therapy services, um, you know, I've been really uh, touched and amazed at the level of like collaboration and, and just like embodying the spirit of like kind curiosity and um, engagement um, that we have with our administration. And, you know, noticing the, the emphasis on the administrative tasks in my role and representing like all things clinical with the leadership team. Um, that's been my role so far because I'm kind of onboarding, as you know. Um, and um, I'm also getting ready to uh, begin to see clients again, which is really exciting. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, no, what I was going to say before was just, you know, it's a rare therapist that sort of, you know, their kind of sweet spot or pre- preferred space is teens because it's a challenging population. I actually like working with teens too, but it's not, you know, it's not for everybody because you have to, I think in a lot of ways you kind of have to be um, sort of at the top of your game because mm-hmm. teens are, you know, they are not really interested in sort of faking anything or people that are not authentic with them. They're not really interested in um, niceties or, you know, things mm-hmm. that they view as sort of just surface level stuff, you know, and if they, if you can't earn their trust uh, you're kind of nowhere with that population. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, teens have taught me a lot and some of the most important things that they've taught me are the most simple. Uh, and I think that, as you mentioned, like the value of authenticity and I think, you know, uh, uh, humility also. Yeah. And teens can sense whether you possess authenticity and humility. For sure. Yeah. You know, like they can sniff it out. <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's great. I mean, and I'm so grateful to have you here because, you know, we do obviously see a lot of teens here and it's not, you know, I think it's a great population. 
Uh, it's just one that's challenging. And so you really need to be present and, you know, focused. But um, so you're a marriage and family therapist, mm -hmm. as am I, um, <laughs> which so nice to have another person on staff who has that same license. But how would you describe family therapy in general? And um, when would you or when should one consider uh, family therapy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so family therapy, uh, you know, a lot of times um, going into family therapy, it's a lot of courage. You know, obviously parenting is a very difficult job to do, you know, and even coming in um, as a sibling uh, related to your sibling's treatment um, can be a really scary thing, you know. So a lot of what we do as clinicians related to initial engagement is psychoeducation. And, uh, you know, I talked about authenticity and humility earlier. And uh, for me, uh, a metaphor has been something that I've used quite frequently. And that's, uh, you know, a, a pretty awful drawing of a car, you know, uh, all of my best effort. Um, and in that it's kind of cross sections. So you can see like the motor and you can see the exhaust system and you can see, you know, the muffler and the tailpipe. And then I'll draw smog coming out of it, you know? And I will ask the family as a whole, you know, um, you know, where do you see the smog coming from, you know? And, uh, you know, most of the family, most often the parents and sometimes the kids also will point to the tailpipe and they'll, you know, say with certainty that that's where it's coming from, you know? And uh, sometimes mostly the kids, you know, will catch on and they'll say, you know, it's coming from the whole system, you know? Um, and that's the truth though, that, you know, that whole drivetrain serves to move the car. It's essential for the vehicle. Um, and yet it's also responsible for, you know, in, in some ways, you know, um, for the creation of that byproduct, which is, which is smog. So, um, you know, I think beginning with that metaphor and just looking at, you know, how everyone contributes to a system that is essential, you know, and it's beautiful and amazing. And, and also, you know, um, there are going to be some challenges, you know, uh, is a nice way to kind of start things out. I like that metaphor a lot. That's one I haven't heard before, but it's extremely apt. And um, I, I agree. I, I would wonder, um, you know, in your opinion, what are the most important things to consider uh, going into family therapy if you're the, 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 the parent or the client? Yeah, I think, you know, probably the most important thing is always related to um, safety. And, you know, if there are things happening with the youth, you know, kind of that idea of the, the tailpipe is like the identified client, you know, that's like the, you know, the child being the tailpipe for, kind of all of the issues that are happening within the family. And as such, those, you know, like often considered aversive or negative behaviors, you know, the acting out type behaviors are seen as strictly negative when, you know, they're also adaptive behaviors. They serve some purpose developmentally, cognitively, emotionally for that child. So to go back into, you know, work to understand how those are adaptations and at the same time, if they do represent safety issues, um, making sure that we're addressing those safety issues and stabilizing those behaviors often individually before moving into family therapy. And though, you know, as always, if there is that severity, you know, with the child's behavior, then uh, once those initial behaviors are 
stabilize the, the initial threat is stabilized. Getting them into family therapy is really important because, you know, the changes that that child makes, that tailpipe makes, you know, if you will, um, if the system hasn't changed also, um, the child is going to go back to that state of functioning or what we would call stasis in family therapy. Sure. Don't you, do you find also, I mean, and this is my experience a lot of times that those maladaptive behaviors that are often identified in the identified patient or the, the, the child or whatever that the family is bringing in, um, you know, kids often will sacrifice themselves in some way or another in support of or to protect family members, parents, right? Yeah. So if I, you know, if I misbehave over here, it'll be a distraction. So something that's going on with mom or dad or other sibling, you know, gets less focus or it'll be de-emphasized or maybe they'll stop crying, arguing, whatever over here if I create sort of distraction over here, right? So, and, and in doing so, they are sort of sacrificing themselves so that to protect or, you know, and, and these are not necessarily conscious decisions that they're mm -hmm. making. In yeah. fact, they're almost never conscious choices that the kids are making, but it often will, will result that sort of the identified issue that brings the family into family therapy is simply a symptom of something larger or something else that's happening in the system. I mean, is that something that you find often? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, those roles, those archetypes that, you know, a bully or a victim or a scapegoat, you know, are often things that you see clinically happen. And, you know, I think about like going back to 1989, you know, um, and beginning that work in that group home. And, you know, there was always a, a Bobby, you know, we'll use that that word, you know, that name. And, uh, you know, Bobby was the one that was acting out. And, you know, the staff with all the best of intentions would say, if only Bobby wasn't here, you know, the program would be so much different. And, you know, I see you smiling, so you know exactly what I'm getting to. And that's that, you know, when Bobby left, someone else filled that role, you know. And that's what happens within families, um, you know, navigating difficult circumstances. And, you know, I will say also that uh, relationships are difficult. And often those challenges, you know, may originate with that primary diet, you know, the two partners that are the head of the household. And then to extend even further, and I guess maybe complicate things more, which is also a nice way to partner with families in psychoeducation, is looking at the possibility of like transgenerational implications sure. or transgenerational themes, you know, things that are ways, you know, we talked about maladaptive versus adaptive behaviors, you know, that people cope and systems cope. And often those don't begin with our immediate family of origin. They've gone back several generations, you know, so I think to learn more about that and to learn to speak openly about that um, helps us to humanize and helps us to begin to accept grace for ourselves and our family systems, which allows the possibility of space for change. I really like that so much. So what can help, what, what help can family therapy provide uh, in some of these situations uh, in contrast to individual therapy? Because I think a lot of times people don't really understand the difference or why I should do one versus the other. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, I'm gonna use another metaphor okay. <laughs> for that one. Um, you know, I'm a, a big proponent of narrative therapy. I think people have stories, so using stories to illustrate uh, concepts can be really helpful. And, uh, you know, I think about like individual therapy as 
like a puzzle piece, you know, in a vast sea of other puzzle pieces, you know. And as you work in individual therapy, uh, the shape of your puzzle piece changes, you know. And as that shape changes, you can imagine that the puzzle piece does not exist in its own void, you know. It is part of a very large system. And the closest, most interlocking puzzle pieces are generally our immediate family, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. And then it extends out to our natural supports and all the way out to our formal supports. So if now we go back to the idea of change, which we're talking about, you know, in the individual, that when the individual makes those changes and then they are recognized as being part of the system, when those changes happen, now there's overlap with the pieces that were formerly interlocked, you know, and there's also gaps that are created, you know. So what we find then is that um, that former kind of state or stasis that existed, you know, that balance in the family that did involve those difficult behaviors often with our children is now thrown off. And there's pressures. Uh, and as you mentioned, not conscious pressures, um, sometimes transgenerational pressures um, to behave and to think and to feel the way the child was formerly functioning, you know. So, you know, in individual therapy, um, changing that shape of that individual puzzle piece in family therapy, like looking at the interactions, um, partnering with the whole system, understanding roles and, you know, creating that space, that creative space, you know, um, for those puzzle pieces adapting and changing also. So that again, you know, the hope is that everything relocks, you know, nice and snug in a way that, really benefits the whole system and also, you know, benefits our communities too, because when families function, uh, communities function. Yeah, no, that's, I like that analogy or excuse me, that metaphor. And it's funny because I, the one I always use is um, to illustrate essentially that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right. Yeah. Which is sort of foundational in family therapy. But, you know, I would always say kind of, if you make a box cake, right. And you put all the ingredients of a box cake in a bowl, right. Um, so that's a cake, right? But I mean, it's a cake because you took all the ingredients that it said and you put it in a bowl, you mix it all together and this is a cake, but it's raw, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So, but the cake that we want to eat is the one that has all those same ingredients, but you put it in the oven and you've cooked it and now it's something that, right? And so that they're both cake because they both, you know, have all the ingredients, but, you know, there's a process that happens when, when those ingredients are then cooked. And so there's cake that we can actually eat. And so I, you know, what I kind of say is that, you know, all the same elements are there in each, but there's a process that happens that makes the, the cake that's been cooked something that's like useful, right? That we can eat, mm -hmm. that, can, that feeds our bodies, that serves us, all of us, like everybody in the system, right? Is part of this final product that is somehow now something that has, a greater value because it's something we can consume and so, right. So it, it's a similar idea, which is essentially that um, all of the, you know, when you're in a family system or any kind of system, right, what you do impacts those closest to you as you get the interlocking pieces around that individual puzzle piece. And so if you're only working on the one piece and then you try to stick it back in the larger puzzle, again, yeah. to your point, there are gaps because the piece is now different versus if you're kind of working with essentially the entire puzzle or all the sort of closest pieces to the one, right? So that, that 
we can all kind of make it fit. So it's a, it's a similar idea, but um, I think that they, metaphors are really helpful in therapy yeah. because I think most, many people are very visual. Yeah. And so that sort of visualizing those ideas, I think sometimes can make sometimes complex concepts simple uh, yeah. or more simple. Turns light bulbs on, you know, like there as is. you said, the cake analogy, which is a different perspective on a similar theme, you know, uh, a light bulb went off for me. And that's that, you know, something I hadn't touched on yet that's really important and ACGC does really well is that fundamental belief that every family already has all the ingredients. That's it. Every family has all the ingredients, yep. you know. I love that. And it's true. I mean, I think we all have the resources that we need for most of us have the resources. It's just sort of understanding them, recognizing them, placing the appropriate value on them. Cause I think, you know, a lot of us don't value some of our skills, abilities, and gifts like mm -hmm. we should, right. Yeah. Or whatever. And that's a whole nother thing for why we don't always do that. <laughs> but I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, so how would one bring up the option of going to therapy, especially to family members who might be totally against it? Yeah, I mean, that's always a, an interesting one as to, like, you know, who could best impact families in that regard. And um, that really is a very individual thing to each family system, you know. Um, it could be, uh, you know, uh, an individual therapist. It could be someone at school. It could be a family friend, you know. Um, and I have found that there are ways to communicate. Um, with people that are in that state of like, you know, ambivalence, they may have an interest um, and they may, they might even be like what we call pre-contemplative, like they're, they're really not even thinking about change. However, when the conversation happens in a way that honors the person and honors their perspective and elicits their perspective and inquires rather than advocates for something, you know, mm. you know, that idea that I am not the expert you know, of someone else's life. I can become an ally, not an expert, you know? So I think, you know, um, the ways we communicate and a specific way that I like to use is uh, motivational interviewing. And uh, because the focus really is on listening and it is on respecting that, you know, humans make decisions in the context of ambivalence, you know, mixed feelings, mixed thoughts. You know, we feel more than one way or think more than one way about pretty much everything. Yeah, both and. Yeah, all yeah. hands, no buts, right? right? Yeah. And when we can sit with people and honor that and hear their story, um, they're much more likely to make the choices that they um, choose to make related to changes that they choose, you know? So open-ended questions, um, being able to reflect back what someone's saying. I mean, you think about that as an adult, you know, like when is the last time that you really sat with someone and you really felt listened to for more than like, I don't know, I, I think I might be stretching it to say five minutes consecutively. <laughs> sure. Um, maybe two minutes consecutively. And, you know, it, it has a lot to do with, you know, our society and those values and, you know, the relationship with the therapist, whether it be individual therapy or family therapy, is really meant to focus on that, that listening and that, you know, creating that collaborative partnership and that really begins at the very, very onset and, you know, that initial engagement. So whether you're a family friend or whether you're a therapist or um, a school counselor, I think, you know, really focusing on that listening, hearing that person, understanding their values and, 
you know, possibly the psychoeducational component would be, you know, to look at how, you know, therapy can support them toward the values that they have, the changes that they'd like to make, their voice, their choice. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important. And I, you know, as someone who I also serve as a supervisor, and I know you do too, um, most of my supervisees are, uh, you know, outside of ACGC, but I, I'm all, my goal is always to sort of um, arm up and coming therapists with as much of this insight as possible, just because I feel like for every sort of individual, I think that has your perspective, there are folks out there that, you know, are, are make it harder for some of us to do the same job, right? Because there's a lot of mental health folks out there, different licenses, different this or that. And so when you're trying to select the right one as a, as a person in the community who wants to get the best service for their family or their best service for their child, and you're kind of like, who do I choose? How do I know who's the right fit? How do I know, right? And it's, sometimes you just have to go with your gut. I mean, I think therapy is like a lot of things. You start out with somebody and you try it. And if it's somehow not mm -hmm. a good fit, you kind of have to move on, which means you have to be willing to divest early sometimes, uh, which is not always easy for everybody. Right. But I, but I just feel like it's so important to have, to choose people that are um, rooted in kind of ethics and sort of, um, validation and validating their clients and and providing uh, psychoeducation but not from a perspective of again like you said being the expert and kind of telling people how to live and operate in their own lives because everybody's an expert in their own life and mm -hmm. as therapists we're here to support and help find strategies and help find solutions but we're not here to tell people what to do or how to live <laughs> mm -hmm. um and even when they ask for that that's not what our that's not therapy uh yeah. and so I so appreciate your perspective. I so appreciate your thoughtful nature and, and sort of how um, uh, respectfully you consider these ideas because um, I think it's really important. And I think that as someone who is leading our therapy department, it's really vital to have those characteristics. So I appreciate you a lot, Scott. Thank you. Thank you very much. Christine. Thank you for joining us today. And I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I will, for sure. Thank you. It's been a great conversation here on the Thrive Building Resilient Families podcast. We hope you were able to listen a little, learn a lot, and leave with a better understanding of this important topic. You can follow Austin Child Guidance Center on Twitter and Instagram at ATX Child Guide and Facebook at Austin Child Guidance Center to stay updated with this podcast and other resources. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, so stay tuned. Thank you for listening and thank you for prioritizing the mental health needs of your family. See you next time.